Hello, this is Brenna Forte of your Outside Mindset Show, where I shine a light on aging adults who may have a chronic illness. And we're taking back their outside mindsets by looking or going outside into green spaces to spend time close to trees, shrubs, and plants. For peer-reviewed research on how green space can change your mindset, balance your nervous system, and heart rate, please go to my website, treesmendous.com, and check out my books, Take Back Your Outside Mindset, and my new book, Optimize Your Heart Rate, Balance Your Mind and Body with Green Space. Now today, I am so delighted to be speaking with Dr. Constantinos Chelios. Uh, Let me read his short bio. Dr. Chelios is an assistant professor of medicine. He's an MD, PhD, and he's with the Division of Rheumatology at McMaster University, and he's been there since 2021. He completed his basic training and PhD in Greece and moved to Canada in 2014, where he worked as a postdoc fellow with the University of Toronto Lupus Clinic. His main clinical and research interest is in the field of autoimmunity and systemic lupus erythematosus, in particular the cardiovascular complications of this disease. Dr. Chilios has published more than 70 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and he is currently developing the McMaster Lupus Clinic and the Lupus Ontario and Matheson Lupus Biobank in Hamilton. Welcome, Dr. Constantinos Chilios. Would you, Constantinos, please start by telling us a little bit more about your personal story and why you're interested in autoimmune disease, lupus, and specifically heart involvement in lupus? Right. Berla, it's an honor and a great pleasure to be here with you. And thank you so much for the invitation. I think it's really important to uh, shine a light. As you said, lupus, we are not that many in the uh, lupus community, but uh, we are strong and we have to make our voice heard. So uh, a few things about my personal story. I came from Greece, as you can see, probably from my accent, (laughs) to speak it. Uh, I came to Canada in 2014. I started looking after lupus patients and taking care of lupus patients in 2008. How this happened? Uh, lupus patients are difficult to t- deal with. They have, they may have multiple complications. They may have multiple clinical expressions. As you well know, lupus patients, lupus is like this is with thousands of faces. No uh, two patients are the same. So they were not. Uh, many doctors to look after about 200 patients that I had in my uh, little clinic back in Greece. Mm. So the uh, the director of the department offered me a PhD in lupus in order to uh, to start looking after the lupus patients and uh, taking over the lupus clinic. And this is how this relationship started. And after a few months, I have to admit that I fell in love with the patients with the <laughs> itself and the mechanisms and, and how it, it was very intriguing for me. So I started doing this. I was working 
both clinically and on the uh, research basis and lupus. I started publishing my findings from my PhD, and I was getting every day deeper and deeper in this in this concept in this disease. And I found out at some point that uh, the Toronto Lupus Clinic, run by doctors Eurowitz and uh, Gladman since 1971, the oldest and one of the largest lupus clinics in the world, was the the ideal environment for me to come and gain further expertise. Uh, in lupus. And I found Dr. Gilwitz in Portugal in 2011, if I'm not mistaken. We met in a uh, in a lupus congress. We had a, a brief chat about this. I sent him my CV. He accepted me. And since 2014, I came uh, and, and worked in Canada. Now, in uh, I stayed in Toronto for six years as a postdoc. And then I was hired from the McMaster University, the Division of Hematology here. And my main goal is to develop a new uh, lupus clinic for Southwestern Ontario. And this biobank, if you want to talk further about this, is a repository of biological samples, including DNA, blood, in order to foster future research in, uh, in lupus. So briefly, this is what I'm doing now and where I come from. Wow, we're so lucky to to have you. And uh, as we were talking about just before we went live, is that I was I worked uh, and managed the um, a lot of the clinics in uh, at right. UHN, uh, but had not been diagnosed with lupus. And it's not until you're diagnosed or you have a family member or you work with solely with lupus patients that. Uh, you uh, you you become so interested, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, right. So it's a kind of a hidden disease, and uh, so I'm I'm really looking forward to talking to you, and I'm so pleased that you've chosen this this area. Um, so, how would you would you like to talk about how um, you got interested in the heart involvement? Yes, of course, of course. I'll tell you about the heart and what is happening with the heart in lupus. We uh, in New since 1976. That was the, the year that Dr. Yuwis published the first paper on the bimodal pattern of mortality in lupus. What it was meant by this in the first few years since this is diagnosed from this is diagnosis, lupus patients may die from active disease. Right. The disease may be so aggressive, so refractory to treatment, that may lead to death. But most people do better now, and we still have some deaths because of active disease, yes, but anyway, we do significantly better. So our patients will survive the first few years of the disease, and then we'll, develop, we'll start developing atherosclerotic, this condition that the arteries are stiffened as the years go by and we grow older, and we will get heart attacks, strokes, and other complications, atherosclerotic complications, or cardiovascular events, as we call it. So the major cause of death in lupus, even now, is the cardiovascular events, heart disease and sometimes stroke, but heart disease comes first. Patients with lupus have and, and women with lupus have more than 50 times, particularly for the younger ages, premenopausal women, 35 to 44 years of age, really, really young women, have more than 50 times 
but more for the times more likely to develop a uh, myocardial infarction, a heart attack. Right, this is huge, and this is the major determinant of prognosis in our patients. And I was intrigued by this. I was trying to understand what is happening with the heart in general in lupus patients, and why lupus patients get more uh, heart disease and more severe heart disease, and we can't control this. And then I started investigating this, looking into this. I had like several publications from the uh, with the, with the Toronto Lupus Clinic cohort, and you know, as you go deeper into research, sometimes you find things that you, you would never expect. Mm-hmm. The one that we uh, we are talking about in this uh, <clears throat> in this publication. Yeah, yeah. And and what you're talking about in this publication is um, is the heart conduction system. Could you explain that in very basic language for our listeners? What is the conduction system? The heart, probably you know that this is like a muscle, a muscle organ that pumps the blood, and it's supposed to uh, to perfuse, to send blood to everywhere in the body, right? From the lungs, the kidneys, the brain, the skin, the muscles, everything will take uh, blood from the heart. The heart has a neural network, a network of nerves, actually, running in between, the um, among the muscles, the muscle fibers, and this network is responsible to control the heart rate. So if your heart rate like is 60 or 70 or 80 or 150 or 30, this is controlled by this neural network. And we call this the conduction system of the heart. We have identified uh, specific hubs. We call it nodes, like the sinus node or the atrioventricular node, are the major, anyway, uh, hubs for this neural network. And of course, all the nerves that uh, connect one node to the other, and they give the they, they instigate the the contraction, the muscle contraction of the heart to work as a pump. Right. This is the conduction system in lay terms. The conduction system is something autonomous. You can't control it. Right. Even if you think like, oh, oh I will stop my heart rate, it's impossible. The conduction system is there to do this job for you from the, um, if I'm not mistaken, the third or fourth week in utero, right? As the baby grows into the uh, into the uterus, actually from the fourth week, we can hear the heart, the heart is there and the conduction system is there. The heart will start uh, pumping and we can, we can check this until the very last breath of one person. The conduction system is there to keep working uh, for your survival, right? Oh, this is the conduction system. That's really good. And and the conduction is the kind of an electrical activity, right? Correct, correct. This is what we, when we have an ECG, as we say, an electrocardiogram, when they put these patches on your chest and we follow the electrical activity of the heart, this is what we are actually looking into, the conduction system, and if it's working properly. Great. Great. So, um, where I found you was in this amazing uh, paper that you published uh, uh, in 2018 um, called Severe Bradyarrhythmia in Systemic Lupus Arrhythmatosis. So, um, 
maybe you could <laughs> you you've explained the conduction system and what is severe what is severe bradyarrhythmia right uh i'll tell you what is severe bradyarrhythmia and then why okay uh, i did the study what was the uh the motivation to do the study <clears throat> by arrhythmia we mean an irregular heartbeat Right, your conduction system is supposed to give, uh, is un underlying the, the regular heartbeat of the heart. Whatever is irregular, we call it an arrhythmia. It's a Greek word, actually, it means out of rhythm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and what we call brady, brady is another Greek word. I'm so sorry for that. Medicine is full <laughs> of Greek words. I it's, love it. It's, it's really easy for me, but I understand it's not easy for everybody else. <laughs> but anyway, brady is uh, the Greek word for slow. Oh. So by brady arrhythmia, we mean that the heartbeat is really, really slow for some reason. The term severe in front of the brady arrhythmia refers to the cases that will need a permanent pacemaker. Right? In some cases, when the, uh, the heartbeat is really, really slow, we'll probably need a pacemaker. Why? In order to support the heart function the conduction system is failing and in order to prevent any further complications like sudden death we go with permanent pacemaker hmm. what was the um the, the motivation for this study Berlin? i had a patient in 2016 at least around 70 years old he had lupus since forever for for him from since he had 20s he had lupus and she had multiple complications of the disease. She was doing well for the last 15, 20 years. Everything was good. All of a sudden, she develops heart failure. We were not expecting this from her. We were trying to find, it took us about six to nine months, if I'm not mistaken. We were trying to find out why heart failure happened to her. We did all the tests. Uh, we, we couldn't delineate what was the, the actual problem with her. And we decided to do a heart biopsy. By heart biopsy, we get into the heart, and this is a very fancy technique. We take a little piece of the heart and we check it under the microscope. Right? It's really, really fancy, but we can do this here in the, in Canada, and we are very privileged to have such an advanced uh, advanced medicine to, to be able to do heart biopsy. So we put this under the microscope and. To our huge surprise, we see what we call antimalarial induced cardiomyopathy. Anyway, another big term, but what happened? The patient was taking hydroxychloroquine, the trade name is Plaquenil, mm -hmm. and Plaquenil is prescribed almost universally in lupus patients. The current therapeutic guidelines are that every lupus patient in the world should be on Plaquenil unless contraindicated. I mean, unless they cannot tolerate it. Right. Uh, this goes to 80 to 85 percent of our patients. 80 to 85 percent of our patients will take Plaquenil, and most likely, most of them will take this for life. Mm -hmm. Right, for many, many years. Yeah. So this heart condition of my patient had been caused by the prolonged Plaquenil treatment. Right, she so was taking Plaquenil, if I'm not mistaken, for 13 or 14 years at the time. And we stopped the plug on and we did very well. Right after stopping the plug on, it took us like, of course, several months because the drug is staying into the muscle fibers and the, the heart muscle fibers. And it takes a long time, months to years for this to go away. Okay. 
So after that, I thought, gee, like I have 13 to 1400 patients in the Toronto Lopez Clinic taking placard. Is it possible that it's only her that will uh, like develop this complication? Probably not. So I had to find a way to see what's happening with the other patients and how, what to do, how will diagnose these patients, right? Because it's impossible to have, say, a heart biopsy in 1,400 patients. It's, it's, it's unheard of. It's, it's very fancy. It's very expensive. It's an invasive technique. It's dangerous, mm-hmm. right? It's like a mini surgery. You can't, you, you can't like, uh, get all your patients to do that. So I went to the literature. I found all the cases, all the cases that had been published from 1965, the 1971 was the first one, yes, uh, up to 2016, to see what's happening. And they found 47 cases. I wrote down everything. I published this paper in 2018 as well. And that was the basis of future research, like what is happening with these patients? How possible uh, is it to, to develop such a complication? So I found 47 cases, right? 47 cases in almost 50 years. And this comes from around the world, right? Everything that was published ever in the literature. Mm. I was working for months to to, to get out the data of this. And I found that half of these patients, it was only 47, but half of these patients had received a permanent pacemaker. Now, a permanent pacemaker means that they had a like an irregular heartbeat that was considered severe enough to threaten the patient's life. Right? Otherwise, you will not get a pacemaker. Right. Now, a pacemaker in Canada, for example, we have pacemakers. Uh, it's almost like one in a thousand to two in a thousand. Right. And this patient, this forty-seven patients, this group, anyway, more than half had received a pacemaker. So I thought, okay, something is happening here. It's likely that the uh, the placard we're giving our patients may increase the risk to get such an arrhythmia and eventually a, a pacemaker. So I went to the database. We have a gold mine of a database in the Toronto Lopez Clinic and kudos to Dr. Eurowitz who started collecting data in 1971. Wow. Right, to give you an idea, I was born in 1976, for God's sake. You understand how I felt being in the, in the Toronto Lopez Clinic and, and being able to, <clears throat> to access the database yeah. and have, have access to all this like, uh, data. So Dr. Eurowitz in 2001 put that variable in the database, actually, and we were asking our patients if uh, and when they had received a pacemaker. So I went back to the database. I found all the patients that had received a, uh, a pacemaker from 2001 that we started collecting this data until 2017. I stopped because I, uh, I had to write the paper. <laughs> I found 18 patients. Uh, and I went back to the charts, the paper charts, actually, and I was working day and night to, to extract the data because I was looking into data that were not. Uh, routinely collected in the database. What I mean by that, when you have a patient with a pacemaker, you're interested to see what was the heart condition before the pacemaker. 
Right. You're going to see what was the ECG, the electrocardiogram before the pacemaker. What was the actual indication for this patient to receive the pacemaker? So I had to go to reports, you know, back from the 90s, back from the 80s, to read um, handwritten notes, right, to find all this, like what happened exactly, why this happened, when was the pacemaker inserted, and all these things. So I found all this, I put this in a table, and I uh, I had, I chose a control group that had the same age, the same sex, and the same disease duration, all of these are lupus patients, right? The same disease duration as the patients who received the, uh, the pacemaker. Why? Because I would like to know what are the differences, what differentiated these patients who received the pacemaker. So we did that. And you what, speak, what, the, so the control group was uh, no pacemaker? and Lupus patients without a pacemaker. Okay, got right? it. So they had the same age. The age is very important because as we grow older, you know, sometimes yeah. the arrhythmia, the irregular heartbeat, is, has an increased risk in older people. All of us, yeah. Right, all of us, all of us in general, yes. So I wanted a control group that had the same age as the cases. They had the same sex, like women or men, and they had the same situation. So because it's different to have like lupus for five years and different to have lupus for 20 years or 30 years. The burden of disease is different. You have taken medicines for 30 years and the other one has taken medicines for five years. There are huge differences. So that's why I chose them specifically to have to, to match them for the situation. Great. So I, I try to, you know, to, to do this as reliably, methodologically as possible in order to have some sound conclusion. <laughs> so I had 18 patients with the permanent pacemaker. Something called Complete atrioventricular block was the major manifestation. Complete atrioventricular block is the, that we have two major hubs of this conduction system in the heart. The signal does not travel from the one hub to the other. Right, it's disrupted because the nerves that connect these hubs are damaged for whatever reason. And this call is called complete atrioventricular block. Like it doesn't go uh, to the entire heart, the signal. So the heart is pumping blood, but weakly. It's very weak. Okay. And it's very slow. You will have like a heart rate of 30 beats per minute instead of 60 or 70. Mm -hmm. And the other one is called sinus 6 syndrome. This is sinus. Uh, sinus node is, is the major, is the brain anyway of the heart, right? Is the the location where everything starts. The sinus node will give the uh, the spark, actually, for the heart to pump the blood. If for some reason that sinus node is sick, as in sick sinus syndrome, you have pauses in the function of the heart. You may have a pause for five seconds, for six seconds, for 10 seconds. These patients are having syncopic attacks, so the, the, the heart will stop, they will collapse, and then it will start functioning again after a few seconds, right? Six or seven or eight or ten. And we can diagnose this with a, uh, 
test we call it hold uh, uh, monitoring we, we have like something on you a monitor that monitors your heart activity for 48 to 72 hours right. and we will see these pauses and then if confirmed you will get a pacemaker this is the only choice right because you don't know how long the next heart pause will be and if this will be like little right so we have this basis what happened how how frequent because we say about the prevalence in this the first one that completed through ventricular block was 0.95 percent almost one percent right not that big but 24 times higher than the general population so our patients have 24 times higher risk of developing something like this. And of course, for the six sinus syndrome was four times higher. Wow. Put it together, right? It's, it's a very significant impact on locus patients. And this may be very an underestimation why I'm saying that, because both conditions predispose to what we call sudden cardiac death. Mm -hmm. So a patient will be declared dead and we will have no idea what happened because he or she never had an ECG or a heart test or, or anything else, right? And actually, the patient had six sinus syndrome or complete atrioventricular block. Mm -hmm. This sudden cardiac death, you know, there was a study from Canada in, um, if I'm not mistaken, 2005-2006, they were checking on the cause of death in lupus patients. And this sudden cardiac death was the fourth cause, the fourth more common cause. And the percentage, if I'm not mistaken, was 8 to 9%. So one out of 10 of our patients will suffer a sudden cardiac death. Wow. It's huge, right? Mm -hmm. And the question is, how we can prevent it? How we can diagnose this early and, and intervene and do something for this patient. Anyway, I had this 18 patients with the uh, with the permanent pacemaker. I checked everything and they went through everything and practically cardiac test before the, um, the the pacemaker. What what I found from this 18. I could identify a cause in nine patients only. What I mean by cause, they had coronary artery disease, that atherosclerosis. So they had a heart attack. And whenever you have a heart attack, it's not only that you lose some muscle fibers of the heart, you don't know if these arteries that are blocked, this is the coronary artery disease. The coronary arteries are the major supplying arteries to the heart, right? So when they are blocked, the heart gets, gets less blood than uh, it should. And if it gets less blood, it's likely that some of the muscle fibers will die. And this is, we call it a myocardial infarction. Now, if this happens, say, in place A of the heart, it may only affect the, the muscle fibers. If it happens in place B or place C, it may affect the conduction system as well. Ah. If this happens, you will have arrhythmias irregular heartbeat and this is a very well-known complication of heart attacks so you don't only get a heart attack you get an irregular heartbeat afterwards and now you have you, you need to get a pacemaker so six patients had this uh, coronary artery disease 
previously, and this is why they had the, uh, they, they received the pacemaker. And then I found patients who had surgery, valve surgery, heart has, the heart has four different valves. Sometimes they're not so uh, in such great shape and we have to correct them. But if you go to correct them, about from anywhere from 1% to 15% of the cases will have uh, an irregular heartbeat after the surgery, right? Because you can't see, these nerves are so small, you cannot see them. So it's likely that you will get some damage from the surgery, and then you will get like a pacemaker. Mm -hmm. So this was nine, nine patients only. Uh, for the 10th patient, there was nothing. I, I just, even today, I can't, I can't explain why this happened. For eight patients, what happened for eight patients? These patients, everything was good with them. They didn't have any uh, coronary atherosclerosis. They didn't have surgery. They didn't have anything. But they were taking Plaquenil, this hydroxychloroquine, for many, many years. Actually, for 22 years on average. Right. The others were taking this for 13. They had, the coronary arteries were normal because I know that because all of them had a coronary angiography, so we checked it. And all of them had concomitant uh, IDCs from Plaquenil. IDCs is a well-known complication of Plaquenil therapy, right? Whoever's prescribed Plaquenil, get some uh, ophthalmology assessment or assessment for an optometrist on a yearly basis because we know that the uh, the drug will go to the back of the eye, will be deposited there in cells that contain something called melanin and will cause damage. You will not end up blind or anything else, no. So that was eye disease. The eye disease, yes. So they had eye disease and they had this conduction system, this arrhythmia. Almost at the same time, around the same time. And they thought, okay, it's likely that the drug doesn't only go to the uh, to the eyes, but also to the heart. Ah. I tried to find out from the literature why this, and if, if this was possible. And what I found, interestingly, in the 60s, there was a study... They were giving a similar drug to uh, dogs. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that like we were doing like horrible experiments in the past before the ethics committees like uh, tried to, to, to put everything in order. So they were giving this drug to dogs and they were sacrificing the dogs after some time to see what is happening with this um, in the hopes that they will find signs of toxicity. What happened with this? The dogs that had high doses of these drugs had heart problems. And heart problems exactly were the, the nerves of the conduction system, of the neural system of the heart, ran. Mm. So the drug was going there and deposited, was deposited there in these muscle fibers that were dying and causing local inflammation and disrupting the uh, the neural network. That was an observation in dogs from from the 60s. Wow. And then 
we, we don't have uh, like similar data in humans, right? We haven't checked yet. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I found, because black and all this hydroxychloroquine goes to cells that have something called melanin. We have these melanocytes in the skin, right? And some of us are darker than others. So I, I guess I'm darker than most Canadians <laughs> because I come from Greece and I have like more melanocytes under my skin and they can get like a, a nice tanning in the, uh, in the summer. But anyway, so we have melanocytes in the back of the eye, in the retina, and that's why we have this complication from the uh, from the background. We have this under the skin, and we have people who take placonil for many many years. The skin gets darker, right, because of this. So, what's happening in the heart? And I was uh, checking the biology journals actually, and I found, to my huge surprise, that some melanocytes were found in the heart around the the, um, the valves, right? So the drug will go exactly to these cells and will be deposited there and will start causing trouble. What they are doing there, we have no idea, right? What, what, we have, what I'm thinking is that, you know, we call these cells melanocytes because they contain this protein, this melanin, right? But we don't know what other uh, functions the cells have. There are some like preliminary studies that connect them with the conduction, with the cells of the conduction system, that they actually uh, derive from this, as we uh, like, even from from the in utero life in the, in the uterus. But we don't know that for sure. In any case, what happens is that it seems that Plaquenil, after many many years. Right, these patients were taking Plaquenil for 22 years on average, may give some heart trouble and may give uh, some of these arrhythmias, that irregular heartbeat. So, this is what um, we as lupus patients and our physicians can take away from this. Um, how how can is it at the point where uh, you can do clinical applications? For example, I am I I am on lupa. I'm, I am on uh, Plaquenil. I uh, I read your paper in the summer. I was on four hundred milligrams, and and I track my resting heart rate and heart rate variability. And I I'm all, it, it, usually I'm fine, fine, fine. And then every once in a while, I go really parasympathetic, like really slow. And so I went to my doctor and she's very open and she sent me for a Holter monitor. And, you know, so it, she was open to this idea. We ended up uh, decreasing my Plaquenil and I've only been on it for six years. So I'm now 200. And okay. so I think that this, that um, working with our physicians and knowing this information um, can make us, can help us. Correct, correct. You're, you're absolutely correct. What I, what I found, Verla, is this. Because I checked the, the, uh, the electrocardiograms and echocardiograms, that heart ultrasound of the patients, at least the last, anyway, available before the, uh, the pacemaker. Right. What I found is that there are like some electrocardiographical findings, findings that you will see in the ECG that predispose you 
to this arrhythmia, to this irregular heartbeat. And it's called RBBB, right bundle branch block. About half of the patients, uh, more than half of the patients had this uh, right bundle branch block. The cardiologists know very well about this. Yeah. And most of them had another uh, finding, another block called LAFB. Now, what is happening with this? If you have this right bundle branch block, you have a higher risk of sudden cardiac death. That was from the meta-analysis of studies that included more than 200,000 people with uh, RBBB. And this increases the risk for by 43%. Wow. Right. There was another study actually in, in 16, more than 16,000 atomic bomb survivors from Japan that showed the risk of five, like five times higher risk to develop this. Uh, if you have RBBB to go on to the uh, permanent pacemaker. Now, if you have both conditions, that are BBB and LAFB. Okay, technical terms. I'm sorry for that. Really sorry for that. That's good. That's good. If We're you good. have both of this, you have a 50% chance to get a pacemaker in the next five years. So if you have this, you should be alerted. Ah, right. And well, we can check this with the plain electrocardiogram. We can have this like everywhere in Canada. Wow. And we can see if something like this is happening. Now, is this reversible? In my limited experience, not. If you have this, most likely the, the, the damage will progress. But one, you can get uh, closer monitoring, I guess, and you can have your doctors on the alert for a pacemaker. And I think that this will prevent what we have, what we call sudden cardiac death. Hmm. Right. Some of our patients are most likely, and, and I told you, the Canadian study um, about 10, 12 years ago, showing 8 or 9% of patients died with a sudden cardiac death without further explanation. Right. One thing is this. The other thing, when I check the, the echocardiogram, the heart ultrasound, is that about 60% of these patients had the heart was hypertrophic. Hypertrophic means bigger than expected. The heart was bigger than expected. And not the entire heart, but the very specific uh, part of the heart, it's called interventricular septum. It's the wall of the heart in between the two ventricles, the major and the uh, chambers of the heart. And that was the same to what they observed in dogs in the 60s. Wow. So most likely, yes, most likely the drug goes and it's deposited there in that particular wall. And we have confirmed this in our studies with MRIs. We recently published this. We do uh, heart MRIs in our patients in the UHN, the University Health Network. Uh, in Toronto General Hospital, we have like a wonderful uh, collaborator who had uh, training in heart imaging in Harvard down in Boston. And she helped us a lot with defining where is the trouble exactly. Hmm. Right. And we, we were able to confirm this. 
So this is what, what, what we did with this study. And what we uh, suggested is this. One, monitor your patients with an ECG and from time to time with an echocardiogram. And if anything like this happens, be on the alert. Something is going on. Uh, the patient will most likely uh, develop this bradyarrhythmia, this low heartbeat, and will need a, uh, a pacemaker. With regards to the low dose that you said, we don't have the data yet, but authorities in the field, both from Canada and the United Kingdom and London, they suggest to decrease the dose of plaquenil in patients who have relatively low disease activity or they are in a remission, to decrease the, the, um, the dose of plaquenil in order to achieve a longer duration of treatment. We want this. We want this on board. Why? Because we know that it has many beneficial effects for our patients. It helps with the atherosclerosis. It helps with the disease. It helps with, um, with, with decreasing the number of flares. It helps with survival. And we have like multiple studies showing that. So it's a good drug. It's a great drug for those patients. But we have to fine-tune its use, its utilization. And I think uh, you, you did right. Like if we had uh, remission for years, yes, we should go lower with the plaquenols. And now we suggest if we need to, to give like uh, some guidance to the to the doctors out there, the physicians out there that look after lupus with patients, five milligrams per kilo and less are the non-toxic theoretically doses. Writing that down. <laughs> this is so fantastic. Oh, and and it's complicated, but you explained it in such an easy way. I hope. Yeah. I hope it's that you're listening. Yeah, and I uh, um I've just been riveted. So I I I just is there now could, with our remaining time, could we talk about what you're doing with the lupus? Ontario a biobank. This is very interesting. Uh, I, I hope I hope it will be interesting to other uh, research as well. What I'm doing for uh, the Lupus Ontario, Lupus Ontario actually is the largest association of lupus patients in Canada. They have about 5,000 members, uh, 3,000 lupus patients and about 2,000 um, caregivers, family members, friends of, uh, of lupus patients. I'm working closely with Lupus Ontario, and we have a, um, a very particular relationship. Why? Because Lupus, Canada, Lupus Ontario, sorry, Lupus Ontario was the association that uh, gave me my first, supported me for my first fellowship. So practically, they gave me the money to come to Canada. Awesome. And for this, I'm forever grateful. <laughs> and that's why we're working so closely. I'm giving webinars, I'm giving talks, I'm giving presentations, and we're uh, like working together uh, for projects to improve the lives of patients with lupus. Uh, Anne Matheson was a former president of Lupus Ontario. She's doing well from the, uh, from the lupus perspective. She lives here in Hamilton. She's a local hero for the lupus community. And we decided to name 
the biobank aftercare. That's why we call it Lupus Inter. Lupus Inter gave me the money to support the development of the biobank. And Matheson devoted her life uh, in, in the Lupus community. So we named the biobank Lupus Ontario slash Anne Matheson uh, Biobank. What is the biobank? The biobank is a repository of blood samples, DNA samples, urine samples of patients with lupus. So whoever consents, of course, I'm trying to explain this to all, all the lupus patients in the area, whoever consents uh, donates a um, three, four milliliters, that's a, a tiny uh, quantity of blood. From this blood, I will take it, I will take the, the DNA separately, I will take the serum. The serum is the the fluid part of the uh, of the blood without the cells, I mean. Mm -hmm. And I will store this to liquid nitrogen freezes. It's minus 176, if I'm not mistaken. In liquid nitrogen, the sample will be uh, good for future studies for 15 or 20 years. Wow. Right. So it will not have the proteins there, will not be modified chemically, will nothing will happen. Like everything stops at minus 176. Right. There will be no uh, interactions from molecule to molecule, from protein to protein. Everything will be preserved for 15 or 20 years. So if anybody has a good research idea. In five years from now, and we need to check this, we can go in, get some uh, samples and uh, check it, right? Wow. And I'm splitting this up. If I have a sample, for example, I will split this up in five different, uh, we call it aliquots, five different small cubes. Why? Because I may need to check this now and I will get only one cube from the freezer because this tube is destroyed, right? You cannot put it back in the freezer after you take it out. But if I wanted to, to check something else, another theory, another research question, I will take the second sample or the third sample. Smart. Right? And I started doing this, uh, one, for genetic studies, for the DNA. Now I'm in, uh, we, we negotiate this anyway with a, uh, with another university from uh, from Europe, who uh, they are able to check to do a genome-wide analysis to give me all the genes of my patients uh, in a piece of paper. Wow. All my patients, like uh, genetically, and it's a collaboration with them. They do this um, around the world. We have other Canadian uh, universities as well and many universities and lupus clinics from the from the United States of America collaborating on this. So the first goal is to do this, to, to have a genetic analysis of, of all of our patients. And of course, you know, I'm following them all the time. I'm going to see how the disease evolves, what complications we have from the heart like this, right? And to put them all together, in, in one database, combined database, to see what we can get out of that and how how we can... Like, the ultimate goal is to, to find why this happens. Why lupus happens? Why kidney disease in lupus happens? Why heart disease in lupus happens? Why arrhythmia, that regular heartbeat happens? And of course, if we know why, hopefully, 
uh, who will get to know how to prevent this, get, how to manage this patients better. This is you know, this is amazing, know, Dr. Chavis. I'll tell you one more thing. I know we have like limited time. I'll tell you one thing. No, tell, go on. <laughs> I did a study. I did a study for mortality of lupus patients in Ontario from 1971 up to 2013, and that was published in the most prestigious journal in, in rheumatology a few years ago. Uh, why I stopped in 2013? Because Ontario did not have, as a province, did not have uh, any detailed data after 2013. Was when I was doing the study. I asked the study from the um, the coroner's office. There is a, a specific office where you can get the study as a research, the the the, uh, the data, and they were checking to see what happened with the causes of death of lupus patients from 1971 up to 2013, and they brought this down by decades. So I said, how many patients died from 1971 to 1980? from 81 to 90, from 91 to 2000, and all these things until 2013. And they was comparing this with the cause of death of the general population to see what is the, the impact of this is when it comes to uh, to mortality, right? In, from 1971 to 1980, the mean age of death of lupus patients was 42.4 years. Wow. Can you imagine? Like I had my, when I came to Canada and started seeing patients in the Toronto Lopez Clinic, the elderly patients, the elderly, the patients like 70, 75 years old, and whoever had survived, they were telling me this again and again. Doc, they told me that I would die in five years when I was diagnosed. And here I am, like 40 years later. <laughs> and they was thinking to myself, how is this possible like for a doctor to say that to his or her patient? To say you're going to fight to, to die in five years, that's, that's horrible, even to hear, mm -hmm. right? Let alone to discuss this and say this again and again every single visit. And I found that that was true that the, 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 the mean age of death was 42 years, so it was true, <laughs> it was true, it was true, yes, because pe people were dying, patients were dying. So with time, we did better and better. And from 2010 to 2013, Verla, the mean age at death was 59.8, say 60. Better. Better, but the mean, the mean life expectancy from 2010 to 2013 for the Canadian women was 82 years. Awesome. Yeah, awesome, yes. But our patients lack 22 years of life. Yeah. Right. We still have a lot of work to do. Me too. You know, yeah. I was comparing this cause by cause, and I was trying to find what was the, the impact. I'll tell you about the impact. When it comes to infections, the major cause of death in lupus patients, we do exactly the same in the recent years as the non-lupus patients. So if a lupus patient gets an infection, it will be able to, to treat her or him as effectively as the non-lupus patients. When it comes to cancer, it's more or less the same. We will do as well as the non-lupus patients. When it comes to heart disease, it's three or four times higher in lupus patients. So still, uh, our patients are dying from heart diseases. 
Okay, so to back up, you said when it comes to cancer, we're about the same, but heart disease still. Heart disease is still so 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 negatively impacts uh, our patients. Right, and we have we have to work better for that. We have to to find solutions. We have to find answers. Yeah, we sure do. Well, I thank you so much for all that you're doing, and I'm very excited about this biobank and the research. One thing that really uh, hit me as I was retiring as a nursing professor, and I got this lupus diagnosis, was that there was not enough research or resources or or discussion or I mean it just seemed to be uh, it, <laughs> it needed more and so that's why I'm so excited about we certainly need more and thank you so much for all you're doing all you have done and you, your your energy and your motivation are really really inspirational for this we are few in the Lopez community but we are strong and uh, we'll, we'll continue to go strong. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm trying to mobilize, you know, different sources from the patients, even from the government, from other resources to get money for research, to get to, to support all these efforts, you know, like for the biobank or for other diseases, for, for, other, uh, for other initiatives. We are trying our best. Well, you're leading the way. So thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for your time and your work. So, oh, thank you, Dr. Chelios, MD, PhD, for uh, your leading cutting edge research on heart involvement in lupus. Um, and thank you for bringing something so new to the table for lupus patients and practitioners to to be aware of, to think about, uh, and to support. Um, thank you for your new insights into Plaquenil, again, the main medication for lupus. So, so listeners, um, let's remember that all of our hearts are at risk. And so that you need to do all you can to take good care of your heart. And as you know, there's one good thing you can do, and that is to step away from your computer screen. And I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> get up off the couch and grab just three minutes to get outside to balance your heart rate and take back your outside mindset. Um, and that's because we all need a little more of your outside mindset. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.